Welcome to Happened Here. People, places, and the stories they tell. I'm Stephen Fry, host of this, the very first episode of Happened Here. The idea behind each of our Happened Here podcasts is simple. Three short stories about people and particular places, from the distant to the recent past. Stories that answer the wonderfully simple question, I wonder what happened here? The Happened Here team has chosen to start in Covent Garden in the heart of London, home to theatres, buskers, the world-famous market and piazza, a place rich in story. This episode, The Curtain Rises on Covent Garden, The Body, The Diva and the Bankrupt, ranges over 1,500 years of history. A single body in a single grave, a deliciously imagined monologue about the area's glorious theatrical traditions, and Mary Seacole, resident in Covent Garden at a particularly distressing time of her life. Without further ado, let's begin. Under the Jubilee Market, Covent Garden. London is Missing. Written by Robbie Stamp and performed by Cassius Conney. It took the discovery of a single broken body to answer a centuries-old mystery. In 410 AD, a tottering Roman Empire left Britain, and in the centuries afterwards, the town the Romans built, Londinium, decayed. Its bathhouses, villas and lofty towers became ruins. Places of rumour and legend. In later Saxon poetry, the works of giants. Where did the local population go? In what is now broadly known as the Anglo-Saxon period, there is an almost total absence of artefacts or burials within the walls of the city abandoned by the Romans. London had gone missing. In the 8th century, in 730 AD, the chronicler monk, the Venerable Bede, described a place called Lundenvik, a market for many nations coming to it by land and sea. The problem for generations of historians was that there was no supporting archaeological evidence for Bede's description. For hundreds of years, despite the odd tantalising find, such as the exquisitely worked Saxon gold ring found in Garrick Street in 1897, historians were baffled by the whereabouts of Bede's Lundenvik. Indeed, as late as the 1970s, eminent historians doubted whether it had ever existed. Then, In 1985, as work to restore the Jubilee Market building on the south side of Covent Garden got underway, the driver of a digger unearthed a human skull. He shouted over to the archaeologist supervising the work. Carefully clearing away the earth, and with mounting excitement, they saw that the builder had disturbed a grave. It turned out to be the skeleton of an adult male, 1.72 metres tall, later dated to between 530 and 675 AD. 
The position of the corpse facing west and buried on its own may be suggesting the burial was of an outcast or a criminal. He was 40 years old and had a fracture to his right forearm, which had healed before death. This was indicative of a parry blow, the warding off of a violent stroke. He also had gum disease. Racing against the contractor's deadlines, the team from the Museum of London carried out an emergency excavation, and in the week it was given, the archaeologists found, alongside the burial, pottery and cloth, combs made of red deer antler and bone, and evidence that the contemporary Saxon farmers were growing barley, wheat and rye. The evidence mounted and subsequent excavations tell us that at its peak in the 8th century, London Vic covered an area between what is now Trafalgar Square to the west and Oldwich to the east. The northern limit was probably Longacre and the site of the Royal Opera House, and the southern limit, the River Thames. The man with the broken arm and bad breath, who once lived and walked on this familiar spot of ground, was, in the beautiful evocation of the historian G.M. Trevelyan, as actual as we are today, thinking his own thoughts, swayed by his own passions, forgotten for generations in an unmarked grave. This man's earthly remains happened to tell us across the centuries that for a few hundred years, during what for so long had been described as the Dark Ages, in that space between the old Roman city of London to the east and Westminster to the west, what is now Covent Garden was London. The forgotten man in this forgotten grave speaks to us across the centuries in one voice, part of the endless weave and drama of Covent Garden. And in our next story, we imagine another voice, what the oldest theatre in London might want to tell us, if indeed walls could talk. The Theatre Royal Drury Lane, Covent Garden. A theatrical diva reflects on her life. Written by Zach Ghazi-Torbati and performed by Joanna Lumley. My adoring audience. Yes, it's me, the Theatre Royal Drury Lane. Now, I can tell what you're thinking. How on earth is this gorgeous theatre talking? Well, it's dramatic license, darling, so get used to it. Anyway, I opened back in 1663, just after my dear friend Charles II became king. Quick history lesson, my cherubs. Before that was a dreary old time. Theatres were banned. I know, preposterous, practically puritanical. No, literally, it was the Puritans. They were very strict Protestants who believed that frivolous pastimes such as theatre should be outlawed. Oliver Cromwell and those party-pooper Puritans kicked up a civil war, beheaded the king and shut down us theatres for 18 cultureless years. Oh, dull bunch. 
Anyway, when Cromwell finally died, after a bit of faction drama, dearest Charles II was welcomed home and rightfully restored to the thrones of England, Scotland and Ireland. And with him came a veritable period of restoration of the arts. Woohoo! New theatres. Fuddy-duddy old theatres like the Globe had been brutally torn down. R.I.P. But, you know, out to the old and in with the new, by which I mean me. And just look at me. Aren't I gorgeous? Yes, I am very special. I am a patent theatre. You see, when my chum Charles II returned, he gave only two people letters patent. Now, this was a legal document that let you produce legitimate drama. In other words, anyone could perform light-hearted stuff, your comedies or pantomimes, anywhere. But only I, and one other, had permission to do the more serious stuff, your Shakespeare's, your Dryden's, your Disney's, the classics, if you will. It was a young Thomas Killigrew who received the patent to establish the King's Company and perform serious drama, and thus I was born. And whilst I was much smaller back then, boy was I a modern marvel. I had it all, a thrust stage, a proscenium arch, gorgeous chandeliers and candle sconces to illuminate my stage. Wax falling on the audience was a little bit of an issue, but yeah, hey, it was progress. It hasn't all been fun and games, darlings. I burnt down twice. Ooh, whoopsie. But like a phoenix, I rose from the ashes and was rebuilt into the theatre you see today. I've survived the Great Fire of London, the plague, two world wars, and a devastating production of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Gosh, and the drama! And I'm not just talking about on stage. You should have seen the outrage when I had some of the first women perform on my stage. But who could complain when seeing the formidable Nell Gwynn? What else? Oh, yes, Grimaldi, our resident clown. He caused quite the commotion. Uh, another time, perhaps. There's been backstabbing, tragedy, and even murder. Yes, the rascal Charles Macklin once whacked a fellow actor with a cane, piercing his eye and fatally wounding him. And all over a wig! <gasps> Very kingly, isn't it? Macklin's ghost now lives in me and serve him right. Anyway, being the oldest theatre in London, I've seen and played it all. If you get a chance, pop along to one of my shows. You'll see a packed audience clapping for me after every single performance. Till then, darlings. Till then. From a beloved theatre deeply rooted in Covent Garden to a woman who travelled the world from the Americas to the shores of the Black Sea, from the West Indies to the United Kingdom, we find her in cheap lodgings in one of Covent Garden's less salubrious streets at a particularly low point in her life. Rented rooms at 1 Tavistock Street, Covent Garden. Then I returned bankrupt in fortune, 
written by VL Richardson and performed by Stephen Fry. A cramped apartment on a treacherous road like Tavistock Street was never where Mary had imagined ending her days. The unkempt men who seem to permanently loiter nearby as she goes to and from her rooms cause Mary Seacole to consider what her future holds with genuine concern. What rent she can afford doesn't buy safety, and as a Creole woman on her own, options for earning are limited. Mary reflects, however briefly, on the unfairness of life. She has just returned from a nondescript courtroom in Cheapside, East London, where Mary Seacole, heroine of the Crimea, has been declared bankrupt. It is 1856, and on this cold November day, feeling contaminated by the patina of grubby ordinariness that poverty endows, Mary feels a lifetime away from the blood-soaked, muddy battlefields of the war with which her name has become synonymous. Mary learnt her nursing, herbalist and healing skills at her mother's boarding-house in Jamaica, looking after, amongst others, British soldiers. Blending elements of her mother's and British Army doctors' knowledge Mary practised standard nursing and added empathy, good nutrition and hygiene, along with herbal remedies from Creole and West African traditions. In 1853, Britain had joined the conflict against Russia in the Crimea on the Black Sea, and as the war dragged on, Mary sailed to England to enrol as an army nurse. Despite good references confirming her skills as a nurse, she was rejected. Undaunted, Mary, along with Thomas Day, a relative of her deceased husband, raised the money to go to the war zone independently. They arrived in the Crimea in 1855 and set up the British Hotel near Balaclava to care for wounded soldiers and serve as a guesthouse for officers. The hotel was funded through fees paid by officers, contributions by those soldiers who could afford it, and any funds Mary and Thomas could raise. Mother Seacole, as she became known, was often seen close to the front lines treating the wounded. Many soldiers and their officers preferred Mary's care to that received in the British military hospitals, causing some chagrin in certain official quarters. Mary became a popular figure with readers back in England, as her work was championed by William Russell, war correspondent of the Times, and highly praised by prominent figures including Lord Rokeby, British Forces Commander-in-Chief. But the fees collected were not enough to fund the hotel, so Mary and Thomas were always in debt. When the war ended in March 1856, the peace treaty left the hotel in Russian hands and Mary with her share of nothing. The coming of peace had meant jubilation for her boys, but cast Mary into financial ruin. 
Luckily for Mary, the dreary view out of that Tavistock Street window was not the end of her story. William Russell, now Sir William, ran one of several high-profile campaigns calling for Mary's debts to be honoured by the government, while the military authorities organised fundraising events in her honour. Her debts cleared, Mary decided to write her autobiography, Wonderful Adventures of Mrs. Seacole in Many Lands, concluding with the observation that she was still ready to take any journey to any place where a stout heart and two experienced hands may be of use. A fitting summary of her life's philosophy. That's our final story for this opening episode. From the varying fortunes of Mary Seacole, who might just have passed, once upon a time, unaware over the unmarked Anglo-Saxon grave, to the imagined voice of our theatre, we hope that the richness of place and these three stories have got Happened Here off to a good start. Happened Here. People, places and the stories they tell. Hi, I'm Cassius, and I read the story about the excavation that located the Anglo-Saxon settlement of London Vic. What struck me about the story was how the discovery was only made four decades ago, despite the settlement's historical significance. It's insane to think that people thought London Vic may have actually been totally made up. We'd love for you to check out our website at happenedhere.com for more Happened Here content. If you enjoyed this episode, please share, tell your friends and leave us a kind review and a rating on your podcast platform of choice. But for now, everybody involved in Happened Here, the writers, the hosts, the performers, thank you for listening. Do come again. We've got lots more stories to tell. Ah, happened Here